Okay, so <clears throat> tonight I'm talking about Daniel 3. I've titled it, you know, before I wrote my lecture, From Peter Pan to Faithful Christian. Now, <clears throat> that title will make sense in just a moment. But I've been going through Daniel very slowly. <laughs> I did Daniel 1 and Daniel 2 last year. Uh, I've taken some other topics, but finally I wanted to get back to the Bible. And one of my desires is to read the Bible and to read it alongside culture. So it's a form of discipline to, to start with Daniel. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to read the stories and see where they take me. So often I create topics um, that are from questions guests have. And then I create lectures out of that. Well, sometimes, uh, uh, well, we started having readings of scripture on Mondays uh, as something that we started to do uh, years ago and I started realizing that actually the questions that the Bible created were actually much more intense and much more complex than the questions that sometimes we rehash and rehash and rehash. So I thought, you know what, I'm just going to try it as a lecture series. So I started with Daniel, Daniel 1. In Daniel 1, I talked about identity politics. It kind of took me to identity politics. I'm not going to define that right now, uh, but just to give you an idea of where it can go. Daniel 2 led me to talk about Trump and, um, and politics. So tonight, I'm taking Daniel 3, and I'm going to read it in just a minute, but where it led me is to thinking about uh, this is the story where the three friends are thrown into the fiery furnace and come out rescued uh, by God's power. And it's really a story about commitment and convictions. And I thought, wow, this is, how, how could we read this in our culture? Uh, and especially as it made me start thinking about the Peter Pan syndrome. Uh, the Peter Pan syndrome is, uh, is a culture that, and uh, a lot of people say it's the millennial generation. I, I get kind of tired of people picking on the millennials. Uh, it's, it's really a cultural problem, no matter what generation it is. But it's a, it's a problem of people not wanting to grow up. And so how is this story to be understood in a culture where people don't like to grow up? And that's where my thoughts led me. So we're going to look at that. <clears throat> so first, I'm going to read Daniel 3. I'm going to read the, the version from The Message, a translation by Eugene Peterson. It's a more new version, one in the vernacular, and um, yeah, sometimes I like to have different translations. It's really good to have just different translations. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it brings out new things, especially if you have three or four. Um, you, you look like a Bible freak when you have three to four Bibles, but I, it's really healthy, <laughs> trust me. First level of Bible study. <laughs> First level of Bible study, yeah. Don't grab a commentary to tell people but look at different translations and try to work it out. Okay, so I'm going to read this story. If I need to pause for comments, I will. Um, yeah. King Nebuchadnezzar built a gold statue, 90 feet, 90 feet high and 9 feet thick. Now, this happened right after Daniel 2, obviously. Daniel 3 came after Daniel 2. But... At the end of Daniel 2, so Daniel 2 is where God gave Nebuchadnezzar a dream, and he was, he was anxious about it. 
and he wanted someone to tell him the nature of his dream because he saw a statue falling down and falling apart. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar was anxious that it was about his kingdom that he was seeing collapsing. And so he wanted to get someone to translate it. No one could. He was going to kill everybody because no one could. He's a very angry, excessive king. You never know what he, but he's taking over the world, but also he will kill anybody. Well, Daniel comes up and prays to God and delivers the interpretation of the dream. I don't need to get into it, but the only thing that's important is at the very end of the dream, uh, basically the dream says, uh, you are the gold statue. You are the gold head. Uh, and there are kingdoms that are going to come after you, but then there's a rock. The kingdom of God is going to rise out of the earth, built by no human hand, and it will rule over all nations. Well, this is pretty devastating for the king to hear that his kingdom will come to an end, that it will fall to other kingdoms, but there's another kingdom to come. But the only thing that Nebuchadnezzar seemed to uh, kind of realize from this dream is that, well, I'm the gold statue. This is great. I should build one. So he builds a gold statue. That's where we're at. So King Nebuchadnezzar built a gold statue 90 feet high and 9 feet thick. He set up on the Dura Plain in the province of Babylon. He then ordered all the important leaders in the province, everybody who was anybody, to the dedication ceremony of the statue. Uh, actually, in a, a more literal version, it names uh, the satraps, the prefunctories, and all. I mean, it just lists and lists and lists and lists. Um, and so he he gets all the officials. It's excessive language that the Bible writers actually using. And so um, he says everybody who is anybody uh, to the dedication ceremony of the statue. They all came for the dedication. All the important people. That's actually where they're all named again. So <laughs> Eugene Peterson's made it nice and short and took their places before the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had erected. A herald then proclaimed in a loud voice, Attention, everyone! Every race, color, and creed, listen! When you hear the band strike up all the trumpets and trombones, the tubas and baritones, the drums and cymbals, fall to your knees and worship the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Anyone who does not kneel and worship shall be thrown immediately into a roaring furnace. Of course, there weren't trumpets and trombones. But there were instruments that were not used by Israelites, and so it was a pagan worship. So it was clearly pagan worship, not only in what they were to worship, but even how they were to worship. The band started to play, a huge band equipped with all the musical instruments of Babylon. And everyone, every race, color, and creed, fell to their knees and worshipped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Just then, now this was a way of uh, creating conformity. Uh, they wanted, the kings often set up statues and called for the worship of the, the gods because it, it maintained solidarity of the nation, but it also brought forth blessing for the nation. If you don't worship the gods, you're, you're just bringing on problems. Uh, the crops aren't going to grow. Babies aren't going to happen. Uh, tornadoes are going to come. Uh, droughts are going to come, so it's better to worship the gods. Um, so they wanted productivity, but they also wanted solidarity. That's why it's important for everyone to bow down at the statue that the king has set up. Just then, some Babylonian fortune tellers stepped up and accused the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, 
Long live the king. You gave strict orders, O king, that when the big band started playing, everyone had to fall to their knees and worship the gold statue. And whoever did not go to their knees and worship it had to be pitched into a roaring furnace. Well, there are some Jews here, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whom you have placed in high positions in the province of Babylon. These men are ignoring you, O king. They don't respect your gods, and they won't worship the gold statue you set up. So you can see that this is not only a problem that these Jewish men are not worshiping, but Jewish men that Nebuchadnezzar had praised and established as officials. So you have these Jewish officials not worshiping the king. So you have, uh, you know, um, there's not political unity. Furious, King Nebuchadnezzar ordered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be brought in. When the men were brought in, Nebuchadnezzar asked, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you don't respect my gods and refuse to worship the gold statue that I have set up? I'm giving you a second chance. But from now on, when the big band strikes up, you must go to your knees and worship the statue I have made. If you don't worship it, you'll be pitched into a roaring furnace. No questions asked. Who is the God who can rescue you from my power? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered King Nebuchadnezzar, Your threat means nothing to us. If you throw us in the fire, the God we serve can rescue us from your roaring furnace and anything else you might cook up, O king. But even if he doesn't, it wouldn't make a bit of difference, O king. We still wouldn't serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. Now, there's some remarkable things that happen there. I'll talk about them later. But one thing that I like that Peterson captures in the original Hebrew is that um, they don't address, oh, wise king, ruler of nations. They're, they're just saying, we're not going to serve your God. So if you're reading a, a normal translation, you're not going to catch the rudeness that they have or, or, or the courage that they have against King Nebuchadnezzar. So they have the fire set up against them, and they answer quite boldly. Okay. Nebuchadnezzar, his face purple with anger, cut off Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace fired up seven times hotter than usual. He ordered some strong men from the army to tie them up, hands and feet, and throw them into the roaring furnace. It's interesting that not only is he angry, but... He's, he's making the fire seven times hotter, as if it's going to burn them any faster. <laughs> and the second thing is that he gets, the strongest, he gets the strongest men in the army. So you have a whole army taking each man to throw them into the furnace. It's, it's overkill. It's excessive. <clears throat> so he's kind of showing, I'll show you how strong I am. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, bound, hand and foot, fully dressed from head to toe, were pitched into the roaring fire. Because the king was in such a hurry and the furnace was so hot, flames from the furnace killed the men who carried Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, while the fire raged around Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Suddenly, King Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in alarm and said, didn't we throw up three men, or didn't we throw three men bound hand and foot into the fire? That's right, O king, they said. But look, he said, I see four men walking around freely in the fire, completely unharmed. And the fourth man looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar, now in the Hebrew it would say, looks like a son of God, like the son of 
God, or, or, or Elohim. Elohim can be God or gods, but um, Nebuchadnezzar is not, even if he's seeing one person, he doesn't know what God that belongs to. Nebuchadnezzar went to the door of the roaring furnace and called in, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the high God, come out. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walked out of the fire. All the important people, the government leaders and king's counselors, gathered around to examine them and discovered that the fire hadn't so much as touched the three men. Not a hair singed, not a scorch mark on their clothes, not even the smell of fire on them. Which is pretty surprising if you stand around a campfire. <laughs> it's an interesting detail. Yeah. Nebuchadnezzar said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel and rescued his servants who trusted in him. They ignored the king's orders and laid their bodies on the line rather than serve or worship any god but their own. Therefore, I issue this decree. Anyone anywhere of any race, color, or creed who says anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be ripped to pieces, limb from limb, and their houses <laughs> torn down. There's never been a god who can pull off a rescue like this. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. It's funny that uh, Nebuchadnezzar and the Hebrew writer really captures that Nebuchadnezzar hasn't really learned much. He's just like, wow, that God's powerful too. We better, we better um, safeguard him as well. You know? uh, and so he just, and I was talking to Samuel about this, and he says, Nebuchadnezzar just seems to like to burn stuff. <laughs> yeah, so he got it. <clears throat> uh, can we move forward a little bit? Do you know how to do that, Rosalie? Just the arrows? <clears throat> just keep going. Oh, that's, that's my outline. Keep going. Okay. <clears throat> so how might we hear this story in the midst of a society or a culture that has the Peter Pan syndrome? Uh, this, this syndrome is when people are terrified. They don't know how to make a career. They don't know how to make tough choices. And so they never grow up. At Libri, we've seen an increase of young people finding it difficult to work, not just to find work, but to work at all, and to grow into adulthood. Uh, they are increasingly anxious about the world and want to become protected from life's rigors, life's difficulties. Um, now, mind you, society doesn't give a lot of rites of passage. There's not a lot of ways to say, now I'm grown up. Now, like I said earlier, I don't want to blame Peter Pan syndrome on just millennials. Okay. Uh, people born from 1998 or something like that onwards. Because adolescence um, seen in adults and been paraded um, uh, on TV has been around for a long time. Um, it, it was definitely around when I was a child. Uh, watching shows like Married with Children or The Simpsons, Homer's No Adult, Full House, Johnny Knoxville, just to name a few from my era. Roseanne. Roseanne, yeah. Adulthood sim simply seemed to be children. Adulthood seem simply seemed to be childhood with more money, more power, and more sex. There was nothing to do with doing the hard thing, being responsible for others, or being virtuous in times of testing. 
Now we see a rise of safetyism. Uh, this is a word coined by Lukanoff and Haidt from their book, The Coddling of the American Mind. Great, interesting book. I would recommend it. The basic idea is that a younger generation, primarily millennials, are becoming increasingly fragile because they want the world to be safe. Safe from ideas that are hurtful, words that trigger them, and people that disagree with them. Lukanoff and Haidt give different reasons on how this came about. They talk about, they give uh, six threads. I'm not going to go into them, but just some examples. Decline of free play, paranoid parenting, increased screen time, tribalism. Uh, that's like staying in your own, own group with only people that agree with you and your lifestyle. And an increased bureaucracy at universities. So my purpose is not to get into this concept deeply. I'm just trying to name it. Um, and I'm simply trying to acknowledge that it's something that we've seen at Labrie and, and perhaps you've seen on TV and, and in the world as well. But if this, is, if this is how society has been and is, and increasingly so, how does reading Daniel 3 fare? How does it do? How might this guy read Daniel 3? <laughs> you know? Can he read? <laughs> That's a good point. He knows how to read Twitter. Uh, you know, cities started putting rubber mats on playgrounds. I don't know if you remember that. They don't have them there anymore, which I'll talk in about a second. And parents kept their children very sanitized and fed them hyper-healthy foods. Some... I know, found it morally important. Mm -hmm. If you feed your child this, it's immoral. Um, if, you, if you're not watching your kid and how they play, then it might be immoral. I heard these types of things. Yet over time, this is something that uh, Lukanoff and Haidt talk about in the coddling of the American mind. Uh, and others have picked this up on safetyism, which is a new word. Over time, it's been discovered that kids were more prone to injuries and allergies later in their lives the more protected they were. Not eating peanuts during infancy actually increases your likelihood of being allergic to them later on in life. So they were being physically, they were being made physically vulnerable by being overprotected. It seems to me that with this rise of this mentality of safetyism, we are creating a generation of younger people fragile before morally challenging ideas and issues. So in light of this, the story of Daniel 3 stands in stark contrast. These three friends are willing to give up their own bodies, willing to die for what they believe, whether they are saved or not. They believe it's more important to stand for what is true than to save their own skin uh, and kowtow before this kingly power. Someone said, I can't remember who, I don't know if it's a famous quote or just a scholar said it and I liked it, you cannot know what you live for if you're not willing to die for something. You don't know what you're living for if you're not willing to die for something. Are we willing to die for something? Are you willing to die for something, for whatever that is? Would you be willing to see truth prevail, even if that means losing your own life, not to see it? 
I think it's a hard question. It's, I, I, I'm not one who's jumping up and raising my hand. I would say yes, but I hope so. <laughs> Please, not me. <laughs> Something like that. So this passage reframes how we think about costly living and how we relate to it and how God relates to it. So, uh, Liz, could you, or Rosalie? I just want you to see this. This is my outline. I'm going to talk about three lessons that we can learn from Daniel 3. First, suffering for not conforming to the patterns of this world is the first lesson. The second is trusting in God's presence and vindication in the fiery trials. Um, I'll talk about how God vindicates and God suffers not just for us, but also with us. And then the third one, uh, third lesson is the fruit from fiery trials. Fruit that is found within us and also fruit that God brings forth into his world through these fiery trials. Um, as an addition, I thought I would just uh, have some pictures for you to look at. I'm not going to explain them, but they're all, all those of you of the Peter Pan generation will be really excited about this. I just have some pictures for you. I'm totally joking. But uh, there's just some pictures I took from the Internet, and, uh, and these are all, they're older to newer pictures of the three friends in the fiery furnace. So that you can look at that while I'm talking and keep you interested. Okay. So Rosalie, whenever I point to you, you can sure. move it ahead. Yeah. Okay. Where's the fourth dove? The up here, the dove. Up there? Oh, it's the dove. The dove. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so this is actually on a bowl. Yeah. But I told you I wasn't going to talk about it. Okay. okay. So this passage reframes how we think about costly living, how we relate to it, and how God relates to it. Uh. And I hope that as we lead through these lessons of what it means to move from Peter Pan to a faithful Christian, to a virtuous person. So first, this story shows that one suffers because they do not conform to the patterns of this world. Peter, in his first letter to the early church, speaks of a culture that um, of people running to a flood of debauchery. He gives a whole bunch of examples. But I love that image of people running to a flood of debauchery. It's so easy to go with the flow. It's very hard to go against the patterns of society, against the patterns of our friends. It's so easy and at times overpowering to go with the flow of one's desires and the ideas of a society set for us. I mean, even a child can be on a mighty river and float easily downstream. But it takes a strong adult with a strong will to swim against the current. It takes a strong adult and a strong will to swim against the current. And how true that is for us in our own cultural moment. It's difficult not to conform to our current zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. Now, Peter later distinguishes this type of suffering from the suffering we may have from sinfulness or from our own foolishness. He's saying we may suffer those things. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about suffering from faithfulness. Rather, this suffering for faithfulness, suffering for doing what is right in the midst of a society that rejects your faithfulness. 
Christianity is not for the weak-hearted. Christianity is for adults. I mean, it is for the children. <laughs> the children will inherit the kingdom, but those children must set childish things aside and, and move forward, as Paul talks about. So we have to have, we must be innocent as doves and shrewd as serpents. We must be innocent as children, but as but strong and shrewd as adults. So Peter says that Christians should arm themselves with the same attitude as Christ to suffer against human passions that's within us or outside of us. Um, he says that to arm ourselves with the same attitude that Christ had when he suffered in the flesh. And that in the flesh means against our passions that um, are found maybe within us, um, within the fleshly body, and then in the world around us. Also, this is not a call for us to seek out suffering. The early church were persecuted, and sometimes uh, people were executed for their faith. Uh, it's, said, it's said that the church was planted by the blood of the martyrs. These were called red martyrs, <clears throat> red for blood. When Christianity became an acceptable part of Roman society, they became a little bit more materially affluent, many of the Christians felt that they grew too lax and as a result grew distant from the, um, the vibrancy of God. <clears throat> so this caused some of them to go out into the desert to pick up whips and flog themselves in order that God might bless them or that God might see them. They voluntarily sought out sufferings to please God. And this endured in the Roman Catholic Church um, for many generations. And so these people were called the white martyrs. They weren't losing their life, but they were wanting to go into the deserts and flog themselves. But this is unbiblical. This is not biblical. The same Greek word Peter uses for trials is used in Jesus' prayer. Lead us not into temptation. So lead us not into fiery trials. We shouldn't want to seek out suffering. We, we must be ready for them when they come, but don't go seek them out. And be thankful when they're not coming. Because they do come. And at times, Peter says, they are necessary by God's will. As it was with Christ's own cross. But they are not to be sought out as if God desires your suffering. God doesn't want you to suffer, but God wants you to be faithful in suffering so that he might produce something in you and out in the world. And sufferings arise in our battle against sin in us and against evil in the world. So when we don't conform to the patterns of the world, we suffer. These sufferings may arise in our battle against sin in ourselves or in our closest relationships or in our society at large. Peter says that when we suffer in the flesh, we are done with sin. That's an interesting phrase. This does not mean that we don't sin anymore. We no longer sin. It means that we are no, allowing, no longer allowing sin to be our master. We're looking to Christ to be our master. So we're battling against sin. 
Yet the suffering that arises by not conforming to the patterns of this world is compounded by the marginalization that Christians can experience in society. So not only do we suffer because we're battling ourselves and we're battling patterns in society and in uh, evil around us, but it's compounded by people rejecting us for it. Peter says that when we do not go with the flow, we will be maligned, rejected, hard put. Christians in our society are called hateful, intolerant, archaic, foolish, prudish. I've been called an idiot several times, and none of them for the right reasons. <laughs> There's been times I've probably been called an idiot for the right reasons. But I'm talking about those times when I've been called an idiot several times for my Christian convictions. In Daniel 3, their friends are called out by a few Babylonians for not going with the flow. You see that they, they don't bend the knee. In spite of the big occasion and the looming threat, these Jewish men refuse to bow to Nebuchadnezzar's image. So Nebuchadnezzar, in a rage, has them thrown into a fiery furnace. In some countries, this persecution is all too real. Right now. If we are a culture of safetyism, what strength might one have to face rejection, even in the subtlest of ways? Okay, my second point. So my first point was that we will suffer when we do not conform to the patterns of this world. Peter even says, don't be surprised that you're suffering. Didn't Christ suffer? <coughs> if you suffer for Christ's sake, you, you, you the... Christ's glory is upon you because he suffered in the same way. The second point, when we suffer for faithfulness, God is present and vindicates the righteous. So this is talking about God's presence and God's vindication. The faith that caused us to suffer, now this is an irony, an irony. The faith that caused us to suffer is the same faith that provides the resources to remain faithful in the midst of the trials. So here, these friends in Daniel take what I'm saying as the long view. They are confident that God's truth will prevail even if they die. Maybe it won't happen for a hundred years, but God's truth will prevail. Even when God's own prophets were rejected or even ki killed, God's truth prevailed. God's prophecies came true. Nebuchadnezzar, with the whole world in his hand, asks... Who can save you from my hand? Okay. This is a king who has all the worldly power and a society that supports him. Well, their response is remarkable. They say that they trust in God's power to save. God has power to rescue them from Nebuchadnezzar's hand, just as God rescued the Israelites from Pharaoh. So they trust in God's power to rescue. Yet... This is amazing. Yet they add that even if they die and are not rescued from death, they will still trust in God's ultimate purposes. They express their trust in God's power, but even more foundationally, in God's goodness and in God's truth. They trust not in the blessings that they might receive from God, but in God being the true ruler over all things, even in death. 
here's a hint of God's vindication even in death uh, that, that um, we see. Job says, I know my Redeemer lives. You can change the picture if you like. Uh, so Job in the Old Testament said, um, I know my Redeemer lives. So Job is perhaps the earliest book in the Old Testament. But even in the earliest writings of the Old Testament, God gives a hint that even if Job dies in his suffering, that was not brought about by his own, that God will still vindicate even in his death. And it says, I know my Redeemer lives. And so there's a beautiful song. I think Fanny Crosby, I can't remember, sang a lovely hymn. Or David, uh, hundreds of years later, said in Psalm 16, You will not let your Holy One see decay. So you have these slight hints of resurrection. You even hear, even hear a slight hint of resurrection in this story of God's vindication through death. That they are they go they are put into the fire and then they brought are, are brought out of the fire by God's power. So there's just these slight hints of resurrection. What we have in seed form fully flowers in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have much more confidence than these three friends to trust in God's power through the suffering on this side of the empty tomb. God vindicated the righteous one, Jesus. And in fact, Jesus is the only one who's ever been truly righteous. And he literally passed through suffering and death, passing through the judgment of God, which is always symbolically fire. So Jesus has passed through the fire of God's judgment. Perhaps he's passed through the fires of hell, like these friends and Daniel, into a glorious resurrection. This tells us something about God's reality. It also tells us something about suffering. While the friends didn't have even the smell of smoke on them, Jesus still bore the scars in his hands and in his side as proof that he has passed through suffering. The resurrection was the ultimate example of God's vindication of those found righteous. And the vindication is not just for the righteousness of Jesus, but is also given to us for those who trust in his righteousness. For Jesus, the righteous one, died for those who are unrighteous so that we might come through God's judgment unscathed, that we might pass through the fires um, uh, without being incinerated. So God vindicates his righteous. But God doesn't just suffer for us, but also God suffers with us. That's my second point in this second section. It's impossible to answer the question, why does, why does God allow suffering? I hear that question often. And I think it's impossible to really answer that question. But what we may point to is that Jesus himself didn't avoid it, but entered into it and transformed even death. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus was perfected through suffering. That's a strange statement. This speaks of his making salvation complete in himself, but it also speaks of his being able to sympathize with us in every weakness. There is nothing we suffer that he himself cannot sympathize with. 
That's hard to believe sometimes. Like these three friends in Daniel 3, the Son of God, Jesus, stands with them in suffering and with us. So we don't suffer alone. The New Testament even says that creation groans under sin. And the Spirit groans. We are not the only ones left alone groaning. That The Spirit and Jesus groan with us. This gave early Christians great confidence in God's purposes in spite of what the early Christians suffered. Paul asked, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Later, Paul said that in spite of all that he suffered, you know, you remember he gets shipwrecked, shipwrecked, rocks thrown at him, he escapes through a basket. He had a very difficult life. And yet, he considered it God's mercy on him to allow him this ministry and said, God's grace is sufficient. Paul, through the resurrection of Jesus, transformed his understanding of how he was to suffer. In the early 3rd century, a woman named Perpetua was suffering under the persecution of the Roman emperor Septimius Severus. She was thrown into the Colosseum to be killed by fierce animals, actually a, um, an angry cow. <laughs> I never thought of Colosseums having angry cows. You think tigers or something like that. But no, it was an angry cow. And I worked on a cow farm, and they can get scary. That's true. Yeah. I was, this is totally not in my script, but I was a little kid, and I thought that nature was all innocent. And I walked, and I decided to jump the barbed wire fence and, and walk like Rousseau through the field. I didn't know who Rousseau or Thoreau were, but I thought it was nature was all lovely. And I love the cows just chewing its cud. And, but I didn't realize it was springtime. And the bull, I, started, I saw, saw it running. And I thought, oh, it's coming to say hi to me. And then I realized it's coming to kill me. <laughs> so I started running with my 10-year-old legs out of the field and jumped through the barbed wire fence and got scraped, just making it in time. Uh, so anyway, Perpetua in the Colosseum, there was this angry cow running at her and hit her. And she fell down, and her hair became loose. And I don't know how they paused the games or whatever, but things paused so that she could braid her hair. Because she says loose hair was a time for mourning. And this was not a time for mourning. She had confidence um, that she would be rejoicing with her Savior soon. Suffering was transformed in her imagination. So how might we find this among a society of Peter Pans, ourselves included? It's very difficult when we emphasize immediacy and pleasure all the time to wrestle with suffering. We consider suffering even by the most minor inconveniences. I remember when I was showing a video to students and I wanted to show them something on YouTube and the, the little loading was happening and it was taking about a minute. Now in Korea, that's really long. Here, that's just pretty long. But they have the fastest internet. Uh, I don't know how they test that, but you do. It's very fast. But 
it was just loading and loading, and people were just like, ah, you know, and yelling and getting angry. There, were, it was a moral outrage that they had to wait two two minutes for this video to upload. And I started laughing to myself, saying, thinking that I had to take it took ten minutes just for me to get dial up, and it was a joy to wait those ten minutes. But anyway. so. Um, we need to begin to take the long view, as these three friends did. To not just think about our present life now, but to look for vindication that may come not until after our death as we stand before God. We must be willing to do what is right and submit to God's prevailing truth, because that's the way to virtue and that's the way of Christ himself. Okay, my third, my third point. So the first was suffering for, because um, you're not conforming to the pattern of the world. The second is that God is present and God vindicates his righteous ones through suffering. The third one is suffering isn't, um, that suffering that is that there will be fruit. Suffering isn't something that's just to be endured. It produces fruit. If one suffers faithfully, conforming to God's good purposes rather than conforming to the patterns of this world, God will produce his fruit in us and in the world. Peter, in his first letter, so this, first I want to talk about the fruit built in us. Okay? Peter, in his first letter, says that this produces a genuine faith, one shown to be worthy of glory, honor, and praise before the revelation of Jesus Christ, before Jesus comes again. And so Peter says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that, that's the important, so that, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So in this you rejoice. What is this? Well, it's speaking of God's future vindication, God's future hope and future glory. So it's like you have all the hope in the world and you're rejoicing of what God's glory is going to produce and be. Yet, meanwhile, you suffer many trials or various trials. Now, excellence in the world is hard won. An athlete must train and put their bodies through pain to compete, to become a fine-tuned instrument. A musician must toil over her instrument day after day in order for it to sound beautiful. It takes hard work for a good friendship to last or a good marriage. Peter here speaks of the purification of gold. So in these ways, we don't question why are these hard things needed to produce, but, but there they are. Uh, and so, um, and so this physical reality is actually speaking of a spiritual truth. That, that testing produces genuineness and purity. So gold is purified by fire. It burns off the dross, the, the impure elements, so that the gold is proven as pure. You want gold that's been tested. This is the case with the genuineness of our faith, Peter says. 
Calvin says of this verse that the fiery trials burn off what is lacking in our faith, misperceptions of God. So Calvin's saying that when we go undergo fiery trials, we need to remove our, our false conceptions of God or false conceptions about what the life of faith means. And it leaves us with a genuine proven faith. The fiery trials purify our faith and strengthen what remains. A genuine faith is more precious than gold, Peter says, because gold, like everything else, will perish. But a genuine faith obtains the salvation of your souls. Now, it produces the fruit in us. It makes us stronger, gives us more. It strengthens what remains, uh, leading us to do what is right, even in the midst of hardship. But it also produces fruit into the world that is watching. And this is my final point. So when these friends come out of the fire, Nebuchadnezzar praises them. Ironically, Nebuchadnezzar praises them for the very thing that he had condemned them for. That they denied the king's command and remained faithful to their God even unto death. And so for this, Nebuchadnezzar praises the Most High God. Deep within us, we praise those who are willing to give up everything for their convictions. It doesn't take a Christian who admires someone who stays true to their convictions even to death. And these friends were even ready to give up their own bodies. It was making me think of Eric Little and his faith that is demonstrated in the film Chariots of Fire, uh, which won the best picture um, of the year through the Academy in 1982. Who's seen Chariots of Fire? Okay, it's worthwhile. And great soundtrack to exercise too. Because of Little's Christian convictions that he should not work or run on Sunday, <clears throat> he refused to run the 100-yard dash for England in the Olympics, which was scheduled for Sunday. He was called to speak with the most powerful people in England in the smoking room at a party, if you remember, and was called and coerced to change his mind. He refused. Unfortunately, a solution came up. Uh, a friend, or at least a colleague of Little, uh, said that he would run for Little, and Little would run for him. Uh, and after Little leaves, the men discuss, and one says privately, that what Eric Little had done was the best, one, best thing that one could do for one's country, is to hold to one's convictions. It's interesting that even though he wasn't going to run for England, and they were angry at him, but when he held through with his convictions... And it came through, they admired and said, actually, this is what's good for our country. Not the 100-yard dash, but someone who's true to their convictions. And I think that we long to see people who desire truth and the common good in our countries, not power plays and the creation of fake news. We're not looking for people who are like Nebuchadnezzar with worldly power. We're looking for these three friends who remain true to their convictions even to death. So my conclusion is that Christians, uh, Christians, by conforming to God's purposes rather than to the world, do not do so in spite of the world, but to transform the world and to transform ourselves in it. Our culture thinks that virtue, courage, resilience, truth can come simply by education and 
using forms of moral propaganda through pushing or in, in curating certain TV shows and films. If we put enough TV shows in front of kids that have these themes, then maybe they will come to believe that these things um, are true. And, and so that's kind of moral propaganda. But to know virtue does not make a man virtuous. That's what C.S. Lewis said in The Abolition of Man. To know virtue does not make a man virtuous. So we may be able to define virtue or truth. We may even give examples of it. But no matter how many books we read, films we watch, or lectures we hear, we cannot become virtuous unless we put our hand to the plow. We must be willing to trust God through the fiery trials. These trials may be intense or they may be subtle. Now some face martyrdom. I hope that none of you face martyrdom, but it is possible. I receive weekly emails from an organization called Door of Hope International, and it spotlights Christians who suffer persecution and death daily. Sometimes these become national news or videos uh, of Christians dying in Pakistan, Iran, or Sri Lanka. Or you might remember the young woman in Columbine High School in Colorado in the U.S. Uh, she stood face to face with a committed nihilist, someone who believes in nothing. He would shoot her if she confessed to be a Christian. She confessed and was shot. I hope that's not my fiery trial. But I'm sure that young teenager girl did not expect that would be her fiery trial. But more often than not, we face subtle persecutions, but they are still intense and they are still real. We may feel social pressure at our work or at our schools, sometimes even in our own families. These are the times when those subtle or uh, more immediate and more ordinary events that can be, uh, it's not just that moment. Uh, there is a film called Jesus Camp and it's about a Pentecostal church camp. It's, there's lots of reasons. It, I'm not going to go into it. But there's a little girl at the end, and she's just talking. It's just a little girl who's talking, and she's been kind of uh, in this mode of Christian language and Pentecostal ideas. And she says, I hope I get to die as a martyr. You know. And you listen to this young girl, and the way that the movie puts it, it, it makes it in this kind of like a horrifying thing that this girl would say. Uh, and it is horrifying for maybe, I would think, different reasons than how the film presents it. Um, but this idea, I think that when I was a child, I thought I'd read Fox, Fox's Book of Martyrs, and I think, wow, that would be really a witness to God. <laughs> but it's actually sometimes, uh, I think that sometimes we want that it's because it's big, and it's fast. But the daily persecutions, the daily hardships, the daily fiery trials are the ones that just chip away, chip away, chip away at our resolve. And we have to remember that God stands with us and for us. And the Christian has particular resources to remain faithful. We can be confident in God's vindication. Present suffering and death are not final words. The empty tomb witnesses to that. We may also be assured of God's presence and suffering with us. We are not contending in our own strength. But this leaves me with one final 
hanging question that I had to ask myself is what about if we fail? Or rather, what about when we do fail? First, I want to say Jesus Christ is the only righteous one. It is his righteous death that saves the unrighteous. That has to be firmly planted in our hearts. But we must not forget the clear and stern words of Jesus. Those who are ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of when I come into my glory. We hear equally stern words in Hebrews. From 249 to 251 AD, the Roman emperor Decius led his persecution against Christians. Former Roman emperors like Nero and Domitian killed Christians. However, like I said earlier, the blood of the early martyrs grew the early church. Um, it's like a child who takes up a dandelion and blows it really hard and the seeds scatter. So you can even re read this in the book of Acts. Whenever there's pressure on the Christians, they scatter and new churches grow. Well, Decius knew this. He didn't want the church to keep growing, so he wasn't going to make persecution easy. In order to be more effective, because he, his desire was to return Rome to its full glory, to its worldly power, that he would create a system against Christians. All Romans needed to do was to go and make sacrifices to, to their gods in order that Rome may prosper. If you did this, you got a certificate. If you did not do this, you did not get a certificate and you would be tormented. You would be, uh, you would be tried and then you would be tormented. Not kill you, just torment you. So, some made the sacrifices. Some forged certificates. Some stood firm and confessed, before, um, confessed in Christ. And those who were tormented um, for confessing were called confessors. They were the ones in, of honor in, the, in that church. Meanwhile, the bishop Cyprian would write from a city to which he fled to encourage the flock. Stay firm. And he left because he wanted to make sure that the church remained. And so he would send letters. Uh, when the persecution of Decius ended, the church then had to decide what to do with the apostates the people who wanted to come back to the church. And so confessors appeared to have more moral weight than the bishops did. The bishops had the institutional weight, but the confessors had the moral weight. Nevertheless, in the end, Bishop Cyprian called together a meeting and worked out a way to discern how might Christians be readmitted to the church. Uh, some were readmitted right away, some on their deathbed, and some were never readmitted. It all depended on the severity of their betrayal and on the sincerity of their repentance. Interestingly, this was the birth of the penitential system in the Catholic Church. It was a, it was a system, a measurable system to know how to readmit or if not to readmit. Because it's tricky. What do you do when people fail? The film Silence by Scorsese about the persecution of Christians in Japan during the Shogun era reflects a similar situation. The Japanese would flush Christians out by having them trample on these fumiers, uh, these images of Christ on a wooden block. 
And so these Christians were tortured and broken down persistently and then given the block. And they would step on it to deny their faith or to recant. I heard that happen in Korea as well. In the film, the protagonist, a, a, a priest, a Catholic priest, the leading priest of all the Christians who are looking at him, finally stops on the fumier. But in the movie, it's Christ who says, it's okay. Trample on me. Trample on me. I find that a very frustrating scene. <laughs> Nevertheless, the film reflects the tension of Scripture between God's mercy and God's judgment. Because uh, in Hebrews, it says, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. So the Hebrew writer was saying, if you reject the saving grace through Christ, then how can Christ be crucified again? So it leaves you hanging. Yet, in the film, when the priest stomps on the fumier, so the echoing Hebrews, the rooster crows, pointing at Peter's rejection of Christ, denial of Christ, who was later restored by Christ himself. So even though the priest denied Christ publicly, we see very subtle hints in the film that Christianity continued to spread, though slowly and covertly. So this, this film leaves you in tension on what should you do. Scripture leaves us in tension. God's assurance and God's warning. And we must hold these in tension. But I want to say, take courage and do not be ashamed. For Jesus has had victory over darkness and death. He has had victory over your suffering. And he will... And Peter says that you will be guarded through your faith by God's power. Then you will stand before Jesus with a faith proven and tested as genuine and glorious. So I, I want to end by just thinking about when Lucy asked the beaver if Aslan was safe. Is God safe? Whoever said anything about him being safe? But he is good. Okay, so um, that's where I end. Uh, let's have some discussion. So do you see... Um, kind of Peter Pan syndrome in our culture as being like a desire to keep yourself safe primarily? Yeah. Mm -hmm. To avoid the hardships. But I also think that it's a result of us not being prepared for hardships and us not being informed by those who are older than us of those, um, to, to showing us models of, of virtue. Um, sometimes parents are, 
but um, but people don't see them on TV or reflected or honored in society. You always have the hundred most beautiful people in society, or we get all the news about people with money and beauty and power, but we're never given much about virtue. So I think that that's, that also sets us up to not know what to do with difficulties. So we don't see it. Me as, too. Yeah. yeah. So we don't see it as something that like can have value or use in our life. I think it's really hard. I think that when people think pain, I know I can be like this. Uh, pain equals bad. Pleasure equals good. Um, I mean, we have taken the meaning of suffering and have almost gathered it to a point where inconvenience is seen as a suffering. And if, if we're at that state, then we're in a real problem as a society. Do you think it's just hardships, though? Because sometimes I think it's harshness that they're trying to avoid. Mm. Uh, and not even avoid, but they're, they're trying to protect themselves from. Mm. Um, I guess true. I just sometimes see uh, adolescents today that come from very harsh situations, have seen a lot that they shouldn't have seen by the time they're 15, 16. Mm. And their way of dealing with it is to... to um, put out of their mind anything that would be hard or difficult and, you know, use drugs or run away from home or whatever in any way that they can to protect themselves from the harshness of their reality. So I do sometimes wonder if it's some, and that would be, I think, same for even us that we're, sometimes we'll cocoon ourselves a bit, my friend calls it turtling, mm -hmm. when there's something that is harsh that you're trying to protect yourself from. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if there's a bit of that too, it's not mm -hmm. just that you're trying to avoid doing something hard but you're trying to avoid the harshness of reality and mm. I think our world today has a lot of harshness in it I think that when we've gone away from reflecting on whatever is good whatever is right whatever is pure and mm. reflecting on all the opposites of that that mm. it ends up making a much more bleak or distressing reality and sometimes that there might be just some avoidance of that that comes somewhat naturally to humans I think that's really helpful. Uh, yeah, that's really helpful. I mean, it's interesting what we what we have in films are are um, gore, <laughs> harshness, uh, but also not. But you don't see adults dealing with harshness. Um, you just see harshness, and then you see escapism. Um, yeah, that's a good point. When I think about safety too, I think I think about comfort. I also think like comfort good, mm -hmm. any sort of discomfort, very bad. And so it's mm -hmm. like let's make our our lives as comfortable as possible. And um, if anything, will make us like awkward conversations even, or something that's a little bit uncomfortable. Let's avoid that. Whereas I find that. Like that's often those uncomfortable situations are what make us grow. Mm -hmm. But um, it's like if we are, as a culture are avoiding that, maybe we're not growing or mm -hmm. giving ourselves opportunity to grow. Yeah, mm -hmm. I totally agree. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we are a comfort seeking yes. yeah. society. Mm -hmm. 
I'm, I, I'm often comfort seeking. Yeah, no, I can understand. It's, <laughs> it's nice. It's comfortable. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, we also live in a generation that's like three parts removed, or speaking for my generation, three parts removed from major turmoil. So it's like we've been able to accumulate massive comfort, as you said, so that the things that usually would be unavoidable difficulties in life that we have to come up against and strive strive to reinforce, like just like you said, children playing naturally or getting maybe a couple cuts and bruises and expanding their horizons in that, that way is taken, is we don't even have to deal with that anymore. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I think that elastic band only stretches so far and we've been able to compensate with technology which is another discussion but mm-hmm. it, it only stretches so far before a society can no longer function properly because they're so comfortable that uh, they no longer know how to deal with even inconvenience like you said mm-hmm. and I think that's what you're seeing now is kind of like a breakdown in the social fabric because people have such an inability to deal with difficulty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, how do you think? And this is a question for anyone, I guess. Like, ways that you've experienced in your own life, or ideas you have for how to build up some resilience mm-hmm. <laughs> um, in in whatever area, I guess. But that you can withstand suffering. I think it's always you have to exercise it like a muscle. Mm. Like the more that you see the fruits of discipline and fruits of striving against difficulty, the more you almost get a taste for those things. Um, and it's not that the things become easier; it's that your ability to with to fight, not fight, but to strive against them. And eventually, if not even overcome them, to to live with them increases. And I see that with people all the time that I admire. Is like they didn't start out the way they are now, but they've developed this capacity to strive against problems through voluntary voluntary action, mm-hmm. essentially. And that's what's led them to be the way that they are today. Yeah, I think there's some truth in that. We have to um, desire the discipline itself. But, you know, Peter and Paul and even Jesus hold out uh, the hope that will come through. I, I think that we need a practice of saying this will produce God's fruit. This is not a bad thing. This is something that I need to endure. And to see what that fruit is later, because we don't yet know what that is. Um, when someone's playing the piano, like Samuel, it's very difficult, especially when he was first learning his scales. I don't even really know how to play piano, so. But uh, he was practicing his scales, and he was frustrated that he had to do scales, because he could hear the music. But now, as he's been learning chords and different structures of how his hands are supposed to go, and now he's getting back, now he's getting, getting into chords. He's starting to get a taste of the thing that's way ahead of him. 
So I believe that when we trust God in faithfulness through these small sufferings, it builds resilience in us uh, through giving us a taste of the hope that it will bring about or the fruit that it brings about. I know when I first started in Labrie, I mean, uh, uh, there were lots of very stressful situations. There's still stressful situations. In fact, yesterday, as I was writing this, I'm like, because uh, it felt like a suffering kind of day. And I was like, I don't know what kind of fruit's being born out of this. I don't know if this whole lecture's a fraud. Um <laughs> is in my mind, but I was like, no, no, God's building fruit in this. I just have to endure in faithfulness. <laughs> but I've seen that as I look back in my life, uh, particularly the more immature me back then, uh, I see that I have built more resilience to changing situations or something like that, or different kinds of people. Though... Um, Though a couple years ago, as you know, my, my energy got sapped. I felt burnt out. And so now I feel like I'm relearning um, and enduring a different, uh, like relearning sufferings. But, uh, or learning how to suffer faithfully in a new way with less energy, with less dependence on my ability to pass through with my own energy. Um, and it also produces, I see that it produces fruit in others. So just a taste of seeing the fruit, you know. I remember that student, there's many of them, but that student that was so difficult, and then I see fruit in their life later on. Sometimes I don't get a taste of that. I don't get to see it, but I, I know that God does. Mm -hmm. And let God, trust God in that, but sometimes that also helps me have joy. Mm -hmm. I don't know if anyone else has examples. Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking of Gordon Neufeld from Vancouver. He's a psychologist. I don't know what he is. Um, he wrote a book, Hold On to Your Kids, but he worked in with juvenile delinquents in psychology and counseling for many years. And uh, among other things, um, he found, or it relates to this research, that children need to come up against obstacles mm -hmm. in their maturity in order to develop the frontal lobe mm -hmm. otherwise like the brain from the base to the higher level thinking if they don't if they don't face frustration and if we're always rescuing them um, they don't go on to develop problem-solving skills mm -hmm. and I guess they tried with rats you know mm -hmm. bonking their heads and <laughs> whatever and they they eventually had to find different different pathways and if you rescue them they just stay there mm. banging and so mm. that has to do with not being an overprotective parent and, and that our frustrations if we harness that especially as a Christian okay Lord what am I supposed to learn here what, 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 what what's this all about and if we can approach that positively that's a healthy maturing mm -hmm. moment for us if we mm. grab onto that that's really helpful yeah finding new ways in our spiritual neural system i guess yeah. our neural path uh spiritual pathways to, right. to knowing how to be faithful in new situations to god rather than mm -hmm. just trying to same old same old yeah. mm -hmm. you know. yeah. that's 
Yeah, another thing that comes to mind when you say that is that I think one of the principles of society right now is that life should be easy, mm-hmm. like that things should come to you easily. Like I think that's that's a widely held belief. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it actually goes against nature. Like I think mm-hmm. like fruits are born through Athletes, hard musicians, work. Yeah. Friendships, gold. Yeah. yeah. So it's um it's a weird it's a weird world we're living in with that. Um, one really good TED talk that um, I found a few years ago was by um, John Foreman, the, the lead singer of Switchfoot. Mm-hmm. He has a, a TED talk called Live Your Song, and it's really beautiful. Um, and he has a metaphor how life is like playing a, a guitar and it's tension and release. Mm. And so tension is always going to be a part of life. You can't avoid it. It's, that's, that's life. And it's mm-hmm. sort of reframing hardship, which really spoke to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's really lovely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah Schaefer speaks about uh, major and minor chords. Mm-hmm. You need both. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I don't know. I feel like that. <laughs> I was talking with a friend recently about being a teenager, and he's like, "Yeah, I, don't, I have so many less emotions, less like tumultuous emotions than when I was a teenager." And I'm like, "Oh no, I still have the same feeling, <laughs> but I just know that like it's happened before, and it's not the end of the world." And mm-hmm. like, and I feel like that with going through like any hard things, like I mean, the first time you go through something hard, <laughs> it's like, "Ah, oh, the world is ending," and then you learn like, and then. I don't know, like, even something that happened this week, it was so much easier to talk to myself and be like, okay, this doesn't mean what you thought it meant, like, the last time it happened, like, you can step back from it, sort of say, like, no, like, God still loves you, like, you're not all of these, like, things that you're immediately thinking or whatever, you know, and just, like, um, to have that, like, already I could see, oh, I have some resilience that I didn't have the first time this happened, you know, like, um, and... And so, like, I think that's sort of, yeah, it's sort of a maturing process of being able to say, like, this is what's true, even though I don't feel <laughs> that to be true. Like, kind of, mm-hmm. this, mm-hmm. this too shall pass, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I was thinking about, and this is also not just suffering under trial, but also just what does gratefulness look like in sort of, day to day and um, I was reflecting on I showed last term the documentary of Mr. Rogers and it really did won't you be my neighbor what is it won't you be my neighbor won't you be my neighbor and I was just thinking about like he was not afraid of a, a particular vision and calling and that to him was the dignity of the child and what he saw around him in society, you know, like hmm. um, kids sort of falling through the cracks or um, being treated like idiots or just kind of like that pie in the face, you know, kind of television. Mm-hmm. And he was like, okay, this is this is a form of like most people wouldn't be like, I'm going to go through television to to you know to, to take on this sort of mission or faithfulness but yeah so 
I just see in that like the impact he had, but it was just like not being afraid. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it was you know bringing a black person and a white, you know, bringing what he was doing was really radical. <laughs> but he was just so quiet and like everything was like mm-hmm. like slowed down to like you know half speed of mm-hmm. what was going on around him and there's like if you just watch that like the impact he made on those mm-hmm. on those people so uh, yeah so i was just thinking about what does it looked like to be yeah it's funny about mr rogers and the, they even talk about the critique in the in the documentary but he had this real strong desire to treat children with dignity mm-hmm. and that they were loved and he saw that the 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 camera was a conduit to talk to that child and he said he always imagined talking to one child he wasn't thinking that he was talking to mass audiences he was always talking to one child through that camera and that he wanted to develop their self-respect their self-dignity and treated very difficult issues like the assassination of kennedy uh race relations um uh, other religions, all different kinds of things that just difficult ideas that parents would sometimes want to avoid. Um, yeah, Vietnam War divorce, or divorce. And, and he was helping kids try to navigate difficult things. But interestingly, people criticized him late in his life by creating the snowflake uh, generation. People who wither um, with the smallest critique because they're all told that they're special. And then they find out in life when they go out that they're not this, they're not the most important person in the world. Mm-hmm. I don't think that that can all be laid at the feet of Rogers, uh, Fred Rogers. I think that's probably more laid at the feet of Carl Rogers. But um, but there's no. I think it was more like you said. I like you just the way you are. That yeah. Thing. No. But I, I'm just saying it's an interesting critique. But I do think that I mean I, I think that that film shows how amazing Fred Rogers was. Um, and that instead of going into uh, Christian ministry as a pastor, he thought, no, I can go into Christian ministry through TV education. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that is a way of helping children become more resilient with issues and ideas by, by helping that when they would have, when society is often fatherless. Yeah. That's a great example. Can I share a few of his quotes mm. from that? I think that those who would try to make you or children feel less than they are, that's the greatest evil. Mm. Love is what keeps us together and afloat. And one of the first things that a child learns in a family is trust. Mm. And he said, I like you exactly as you are. This was his message to children. Children need to hear that. I don't think anyone can grow unless he is accepted as he is. Mm. I didn't need to put on a funny hat to have a relationship with a child. (laughs) That's great. And are you still in touch with childhood? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's a healthy balance of childhood and adulthood. Mm. Thanks. Does it ever feel, and this is a general question to the masses, Um, maybe it's just that I'm a very slow learner but I do feel often like that rat who's still banging (laughs) against the wall and like I keep 
and having to relearn the same lesson over and over again. Um, and that I find, I don't mind the striving, um, and I think that the discipline is positive. But when you don't see any progress over a long period of time in a specific endeavor, it tends to be discouraging. Mm. Um, do you, like my walk with Christ is still relatively fresh and new, um, and that's what's given, what gives me hope is that my resolve will be different. But for mature, more mature Christians that have been on a walk longer, um, and encountered maybe like your most difficult or nitty-gritty problem that keeps rearing its hydra head. Um, what is your uh, strategy to deal with that that issue or, tho or those types of issues, I guess, um, that keeps seemingly to recur no matter how you how you can uh, can attack them. Uh, it made, made me think about when I played chess, you know, it's always the same game. Mm -hmm. I, uh, some, somehow, sometime I do uh, some perfect move and then all of a sudden I realize that I do a move that costs me to lose a piece and stuff and then I just have to focus on that and analyze other way that I can do a better move, like mm. ponder about that and also remind me, you know, I, when I was a baby, if you had throw me in a swimming pool, I would have probably drowned. Mm -hmm. And uh, and at some point, uh, I think when I could walk, I thought I could swim, so I jump in the water, and then somebody heard me and saved me. And then uh, so I would have drowned. But along the way, I would I was never able to swim until somebody kind of teach me how to swim, and I was mm -hmm. thinking, I was thinking maybe that. Uh, some guidance in life. I mean, I do believe that uh, lots of us are become adult and we're thrown into. Now we have to live alone and <coughs> pay our rent and uh, and but we don't have any education and stuff like that because of the education that we receive at home with this lots of dysfunctional family and uh, mm -hmm. then I was thinking that maybe as a non-Christian I was thinking that. Maybe there's lots of people that go towards Christian to find some guidance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, well, I always admire my friend Abigail with our, all of her sing from the Bible and her quote that always get me mad because I'm like, yeah, it's always so positive. So it makes sense. <laughs> anyway, and uh, I just, just what you said made me talk about that. And I just want to put it out there. That's helpful. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'm a good yeah, it's really important for us to have guidance. I think that a lot of people in society, we've become so individualistic that we're always trying to figure out everything on our own. Uh, even the basis of society is, um, the basis of all things is autonomy, like self-law, that I need to create my values, I need to create my truths by which to live by. So I need to create my own compass but you start realizing that you can't create your own compass because gravity exists, kindness exists, thief um, stealing exists. Like there's 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 moral parameters that affect us, and uh, and I do believe that. I mean, like you said, we need masters and 
models and heroes uh, and mentors to lead us into knowledge of these things. You know, my son is constantly me asking me questions and I try, as long as he stays off Minecraft, he asks yeah. me lots of good questions. By the way, like kudos so far. Do you like the specific words were like, my dad knows everything except he one said that question. Tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I said, did you ever ask your dad a question you couldn't answer? He said, no, never. <laughs> Don't help him. Uh, but. <clears throat> Yeah, I, I, you know, these kids need to know how to navigate the world. And I do believe that uh, we are in need of a Heavenly Father who gives us ultimate guidance to know what reality is like and to know who we are. Because we ourselves are a mystery to ourselves. Mm -hmm. And other people are a mystery to ourselves. Did you want to say something, Fred? Yeah. Well, um, we don't want to confuse guidance with doing it for them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's true. That's true. And I do believe that uh, even God, you know, uh, it's interesting in the Bible whenever it calls us to, to, to abide in commands or in these kinds of things. Uh, it always says that God empowers us, but, but it's always these, the verbs are always showing human agency, but empowered by God. And so it's always this, this lovely pairing, but we, are, are, we must be responsible ourselves. And so God is not doing it for us. And I think that sometimes we want the hard work done for us. Mm -hmm. um, but this is a part of what's maturing. And, and so I think the fatherhood of God is a perfect example to understand who God is um, in that way. I think like your, your picture of Samuel asking you lots of questions. What about those of us who never had that father figure or the parents that would have instilled so many things in us that would have been just intuitive and, and life would have been but now we grow up and, and it's it's not intuitive and so no. <laughs> fumble around trying to well you know my father was abusive and misguided in some ways he was generous and funny and enjoyable to be around except when he was abusive uh, and it was one thing that really helped me forgive him was a passage in Hebrews. And it said, um, your, uh, God disciplines you like a father, and your fathers discipline you um, in the way that they know best, or something like that. Best, yeah. Or something like that. And I thought, huh, there's a caveat here. God disciplines perfectly. The fathers try their best, but they're going to make mistakes. And I know... I mean, some people know this, but the day, the first day I brought Samuel home and put him in the crib, the first day I ever put Sarah Beth in the crib, I stood over the crib and I said, Samuel, or Sarah Beth, I'm going to mess you up. I'm a sinful person, but so are you. You're going to have your own issues that I'm going to have a problem with. Let's just start on, this, on that. <laughs> Let's get it all out there and work from there. <laughs> Because I don't want him to think that I'm the perfect father. And he has that misperception at this time, which he's going to later blame me for. Uh, <laughs> it's, part of, <laughs> it's part of growing up. Uh, so, I, you know, mothers and fathers are imperfect. And ultimately, we need the fatherhood of God. We need the guidance of, I believe, 
that Scripture gives us is our mentor, to mentor us in life, mm -hmm. and to have someone who can teach us well. That's why I think it's the greatest disaster when someone does not teach us well through the Bible. It ends up being used as a weapon or used to, to beat people down mm -hmm. rather than to educate people um, in a way of mentoring them with life. Right. Yeah, I think something, uh, the individual individualism out there, um, the Bible is very much counter to that because of all the one another scriptures. Mm. There's so many one another's. Yes. Confess your sins one to another and you'll be healed. Mm. And love one another. Mm. Um, on and on and on. Yeah. That we, the point is we need each other. And so many times God has worked in my life, and this is kind of what you're asking, Jonathan, through other people. Mm. You know, sometimes God just talks to me and, and, and that's true. It deals with me one on one, but so many more times is through when I'm vulnerable or open up to someone and I receive yeah. God's that's love true. or ministry through them. Yeah, that's true. And Jonathan, something that um, just recently happened, or a scripture that's been brought back to me is, you know, the one we mostly all know, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him. And I've just been, like in everything, just like, okay, God, here, here's where I am. Here's this problem. I acknowledge you. In other words, hmm. come, come into it and be part of this with me. Mm -hmm. What do you say? How are, how are you going to help me here? And just acknowledging him. Hmm. In every, and I, I don't know if that is too simple, but... I think it's very profound. In all our ways. Every little thing. Yeah. Everything. Yeah. And I've just been... It's a childlikeness. And, and that's okay, you know. That's right. I, yeah. I, I think C.S. Lewis said the only unforgivable sin is to give up. Uh, at least someone said that he said that. <laughs> uh, don't fact check me. Uh, no, actually do and tell me if I'm right. Uh, yeah, I mean to say, okay, I have this besetting sin. That's the theological word for sins that you just keep going back to. You're kind of like oldies but goodies <laughs> uh, but um, yeah you just you keep returning to and sometimes I call it the binky blanket you just kind of keep returning to the old familiar sinfulness in you because it's just like it's like your your booby your your little blanket that you carry around because that's the one that gives you comfort or control or assurance or security <laughs> you're like oh no this is my life and um, and so I think that you just keep going back and saying, okay, I picked up the booby blanket again or the binky blanket, whatever it's called. I don't know. Baby. <laughs> Baby blanket, okay. Just general. <laughs> Baby blanket. Um, but, yeah, and just to say, okay, I picked it up again. I picked it up again. I, I, I put it down before you again. Or help me in it. And I love what you said. Just acknowledge him in all your ways. Mm -hmm. Good or bad, here I am, but I repent. I try to move forward. And so, uh, and so that warning and assurance also falls on us. Uh, you know, uh, there's a difference between human conviction and divine conviction. 
human conviction is uh, if you are found guilty, you are sentenced, you are convicted, you are a convict. But divine, divine conviction is that the spirit convicts and says you are guilty, you are sentenced. Now, um, um, but no longer do I, not, I do not condemn you, go and sin no more. So that spiritual conviction is I am guilty, but I am forgiven. Go and sin no more. I'm guilty, but forgiven. Go and sin no more. And so it's not a license for sin, but it's also not a license to beat yourself up. It's just to trust God in each step in all your ways. Yeah. What I was uh, thinking is similar to what you've just said, but in response to, yes, those recurring um, patterns or faults that we have is they do keep recurring um, but they become uh, less um, the reaction is less like dramatic and less um, scary mm. you become I, I think that less less fear involved and maybe it's because of what you just said that uh, you know that you're forgiven and or y you know how to approach God in it. Mm. Mm. Um, and I think that some things do lessen, but then, I don't know, but often, it, and, and maybe it's, that's not a bad thing either, maybe it kind of reminds us that we're not perfect. <laughs> um, but I think it's in our, I think it's our response to it that changes over time. Um, yeah, rather than just the thing going away itself. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just how, yeah, if I may, wait, what? Just go at it. Oh, yeah, true. Yeah. If I may, I do want to go back to a story. You're saying about like, the first day you brought Samuel and Sarah Beth back to home, and you said that, you know, like, I'm going to mess up. I, I don't know. Like, I mean, so you do know that Peterson's idea when it comes to parenting, like, just don't do don't allow kids to become someone you don't like yeah yeah do you think that's half true or do you think that's like kind of true because I, I know that like he is a that like, you have to know your monster you have to know your, your weapon to your kids in the sense that if you they do anything that's that's bad and that's like that, that will annoy you and so I do get that the sinner nature mm. but do you think that's it's a half-truth that we were talking about before. Yeah, so Peterson has one of the troll rules for life in his book is um, uh, make sure that... Don't let your kids do anything that makes you dislike them. Yeah, don't let your kids do anything that makes you dislike them. Uh, you know, and what he ultimately means is don't let your kid be a little tyrant. And then you grow up and you don't know how to handle them. And your idea of you know, laissez-faire parenting, the loving approach, quote-unquote, is to let your kid be kind of like free and crazy, and then you end up not liking them, and the best thing that you do is avoid them. You're like, don't avoid them, discipline them. Discipline them so, so that they might become someone you respect. Uh, just to keep it as simple as that, I'm all, way, I'm all the way in with Peterson. All the way in, because that shows them that you care. Um, now, there are ways that, you know, my dad showed me actually his abuse in some ways was 
for good. And it took me a long time to get that all figured out because a lot of it actually did prepare me for a lot of hard things. Uh, but it also misshaped me, as I think all parents do. Um, I just wish that he would have recognized that. <laughs> that would have helped. Um, but, um, yeah, so sometimes people can try to control their kids. I think that that's also bad. Um, but when I, basically, when I stood over Samuel, I wanted to recognize him as, okay, I have a responsibility that I will fail at, but I still have that responsibility. And the second is that I was confessing that to him and making him confess to me, kind of, uh, is that I wanted to treat him as an equal. So I, I differ in role, but I'm equal in dignity. And, um, and so I felt that that was better than to think my way is the best way. That was my dad's motto, my way or the highway, um, which meant purse strings in a lot of ways. Um, so, yeah, I just thought it was a better stance. And so, yeah, Samuel does things that, dislike, that I dislike, but that's part of my... Sometimes I see mirror images of myself that I don't like. Sometimes I see mirror images of Julia that I don't like. And sometimes I see his own creations <laughs> that I don't like. But I'm like, okay, well, he's like that, and I'm probably really quite difficult too. So You are. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's great. Uh, just one last point before we break then is, you know, you just mentioned about love one another for one another. One of the one of the things that I found curious about this is because sometimes Daniel's on his own, but in this one you have three friends, and in Daniel falls with closely in line with the prophetic tradition, but also the wisdom tradition, and so those are different genres. Uh, that are written differently and have different expectations. But in wisdom, it says, uh, you know, basically being by yourself is really terrible. But two people can lie down together and be, make each other warm. And if you have three friends tied together, it's like a very strong core that's hard to break. And I was just thinking, oh, it's interesting that there are three friends, <coughs> that, that they have the community of one another, that they can stand alongside of one another and really strengthen one another uh, in the times of testing. And so I was thinking about that. I was like, you know, in times of testing, what helps me most are those friends who stand alongside me and encourage me through the times of testing and and remind me of the focus of where I'm at. So, Okay, well, thanks, and good night. Thank you. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.